Amen. Well, uh, I have too many memories to list of um, just why I love this church and the joy that God brings into my life through it. Um, but I've got to say, already, one of my top 10 memories is hearing Joyce Holthouse say, I want some bacon at the women's breakfast. I don't just want some quiche. She is saying the hard things today. Uh, Joyce, we will find a way to not just have quiche at the women's breakfast. <laughs> I don't want to end up in your doghouse now. Um, All right, so uh, among many things, C.S. Lewis, the brilliant theologian and scholar and professor at Oxford in the 1900s, uh, I mean, C.S. Lewis has has an amazing story. Uh, He was an atheist who was resistant to the idea of God, but eventually he was drawn to the things of God, and he describes one day on a car trip, he left not believing in God, but God rearranged his mind while he was driving. And by the time he got to where he was going, he had surrendered his life to God. And C.S. Lewis went on and he taught at Oxford. He wrote some of the greatest literary works of the 1900s on suffering and joy and the problem of evil and morality. He was unparalleled in his brilliance as a student of the human heart in the realities of God's created world. But really, C.S. Lewis might be best known for his works, uh, a children's works entitled The Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, I'm in that joyful season of life where my kids uh, enjoy The Chronicles of Narnia and at the Larson household trying to read through them. Not every night, and we're not getting through all of them. Uh, But we're trying to here or there, and it's been a joy reading through these works with my girls and seeing the light bulb come on for them. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis gives an account of a magical land called Narnia. And it was once ruled, and it was flourishing, and it was alive, and it was beautiful. And there is this mighty lion named Aslan that represents Jesus Christ. And under Aslan's rule, there was abundance and there was joy and there was safety and there was prosperity for all who lived there. But sadly, this land had fallen and now it was ruled by the White Witch. And instead of spring and summer and vibrance, there is, as C.S. Lewis says, unending winter with no Christmas. And the white witch turns um, the, the centaurs and the animals and the fawns into stone rather than letting them live in freedom. Instead of joy, there's misery. Instead of freedom, there's bondage under the white witch. But there was hope for the animals and the creatures living in the forest. They had heard a prophecy that one day two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve would come to Narnia and they would undo the rule of the white witch. And then one day, a little girl named Lucy stumbles in through the wardrobe into Narnia. And soon her brothers, Peter and Edmund, and her sister Susan are with her in Narnia. And they begin exploring and seeing amazing things in this land of winter with no Christmas. But then one day, there's the brother, Edmund, who is off on his own, and the white witch comes along, and she sees... a a human, male, a son of Adam. And she's worried because she knows the prophecy that her rule will be undone by two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve. So she stops and she's speaking with Edmund and she gives him this delicate delight, this dessert called, some of you know, 
Turkish delight. It's this amazing, rich dessert, and she begins to feed him the Turkish delight, trying to get information from him. Are you here alone? Do you have any sisters or a brother with you? And as she feeds him more and more of the Turkish delight, he gets more and more addicted, and his craving for this dessert begins to rule him. And then she takes away the dessert, and she says, bring me your brother, Bring me your sisters, and I will give you more Turkish delight. And she promises to give them blessing when her intention is to enslave them and destroy them. And the sad account continues on in Narnia as Edmund betrays his brother and sisters and brings them into danger, all for the chance to get more Turkish delight. Edmund is ruled by his cravings to the point where he is willing to sacrifice those closest to him just to get a little more sugar on his tongue. And see, it's amazing as any parent reads this story to their kids. The kid might be six years old, 12 years old. The kid sees what's happening. And the kid is going, don't do it, Edmund. Don't do it. It's not going to go well. It's the white witch. And the child sees it. And the funny part is for us as adults, as we read it, We think to ourselves, I'd never fall for that. I'd never let Turkish delight being dangled in front of my eyes cause me to betray those closest to me. But C.S. Lewis is smarter than any of us. And C.S. Lewis was tapping into the human dynamic of whenever an appetite rules us, there is no telling to what ends we will go to satisfy that appetite. See, we go, don't do it, Edmund. I would never fall for that. All the while, there's some Turkish delight being held out before our eyes in the 21st century. And sad story after sad story shows the person going into the very situation that will destroy them and those closest to them. You see, friend, I want to acknowledge the fact that there is some appetite in your life and my life. There is some Turkish delight that is held out before your eyes, that you would do what you would never think is possible just to get a bit more sugar on your tongue. And what I want to say today in this text we're going to look at is it's going to acknowledge the danger of valuing anything above God. It's going to show us the danger of letting any appetite rule our heart and govern our life and drive our actions more so than the wisdom of what God says and what his word is leading us into. So with that danger and invitation in mind, I invite you to grab your Bible and open on up to Ephesians chapter five. Now you'll see up on the screen that it says verses one to 21. And if you were here last week, you heard me preach on only Ephesians five verses one and two. And you're thinking, good luck to that guy getting through 21 verses today. Don't worry, I am not going to try to do that. Uh, I'm going to really camp out in verses three to six. And then at the end of the service, I'm going to set you up for some homework. Yes, you are getting homework at church for verses seven to 21 the rest of the week. But it won't feel like homework if you do it right. It will feel like a feast if you actually do it. So we'll get to that later on. But before we get into our text today, I want to remind us that last week, I said that the invitation of the Christian life is not Stop doing bad things, you bad, bad sinner. That's not the Christian story. 
That's not the biblical invitation. Too often we think in terms of the Christian life is hearing, stop it, you bad, bad dog, and go in the corner and think about what you did. And that's not at all what the invitation to the Christian life is. Last week I said, the invitation to the Christian life is to become the person you've always longed to be by beholding God and letting him heal your inner world and renew you from the inside out and make you into the kind of person who loves like Jesus loved. The invitation of the Christian life is the single greatest life you could ever live. But with that being said last week, and that's true, and that's the overarching idea, I need to clarify today that even though that's the overarching invitation, <laughs> you'd better believe there are still some moral implications to that life. That this is not be like Jesus and do whatever you think is right. There are still some very clear commands in scripture of how to live and how to not live. I mean, just a month ago, Ephesians 4.17, as I settled in that text where Paul said, you must no longer live according to what's normal in the world. You must stop that. That is true just as much as become the person you've always wanted to be in Jesus. They're not mutually exclusive. They're complementary. But hear me, the fight against sin is not just to stop sinning. It's to flourish and become like Christ. So with that in mind, let's look at Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 to set a trajectory for this text today. Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So I'm really going to settle into verses 3, and 3 to 6 today. But I've got to anchor that exhortation in this right here, verses 1 and 2. Remember, the call of the Christian life is to imitate God the Father and reflect his character in our life. The, the goal, the end goal of the Christian life is to become the kind of person who more naturally loves like Jesus loved in your everyday life. Becoming a person of love is the ultimate test of the spiritual life of an individual. It is not Bible knowledge, although that's good and essential. It is not activity at church, although that's good and essential. The end goal of everything God is doing is to make us more loving like Christ. So as you hear me walk into the weeds of some pretty hard sin a discussion today, hear this. This isn't about stop sinning, you bad, bad sinner. It's about becoming like Christ, but also let this confront us. The challenge for you, a Christ follower, is are you becoming a more loving person as you progress in your Christian life? If you're stopping those bad, bad sins you see on social media, but becoming the type of person who is harshly judging those people, and looking down with a sneering attitude, you're missing the point. If you are growing in knowledge of Scripture, as good and essential as that is, if you know more Bible things but aren't becoming a more loving person, you're missing the whole point of the game to make us more like Jesus. So don't think, yeah, those people need to hear this sermon today. You and I need this. Here's the end goal of the Christian life. Here's the ultimate test. Are you becoming a person 
who loves more like Jesus, or are you not? With that in mind, now let's get to verse three. Paul continues. Verse three says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. A hard word that grates against our cultural sensibilities in this day and age, but a needed word, because this is a warning to watch out for the Turkish delight being offered to you from the white witch. That this is, you may crave it, but it won't lead you to what you want. This is, if you want to flourish, watch out for the danger. And see, it's interesting because in verse 3, Paul begins to list some sins to make war against and to flee and to avoid. And we need to remember, this isn't just like some random list of bad, 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 bad things that Paul's pulling out of a hat. That this is very intentional why the Spirit of God led Paul to write these examples of greed and covetousness and sexual morality because Paul is showing the opposite of verse 2, loving like Jesus. That the reason why verse 3 is flowing out of verse 2 is because everything listed in verse 3 is directly undermining the love of verse 2. You see, see the connection here. Paul is showing us that the opposite of love is sexual morality. The opposite of love is greed. The opposite of love is impurity spilling onto the lives of others. In his commentary on Ephesians, scholar Constantine Campbell argues that these vices are not just some abstract random moral principles These aren't just some bad vices he's listing at random, but they are inappropriate for God's people because they directly undermine our capacity to love like Jesus loved. If you want to love like Jesus loved, these will destroy your ability to become that type of a person. And so verses one and two is the ultimate goal. Verse three, sharp turn to the opposite direction from loving others to the love of self above all. In her commentary on Ephesians, scholar Lynn Kohick says the following. Paul contrasts walking in love with avoiding three deadly sins that cut to the heart of personhood. In decrying sexual sins and greed, Paul addresses the root cause of alienation from God, namely the disordering of love such that the self is privileged over God. And you could continue, such that, disordering of love, that the self is privileged over the well-being of others. Same idea. When we value self over God, guaranteed, we will value self over the well-being of others as well. 
And notice that line that Lynn Kohick said, the disordering of love. When you care more about your appetites than the well-being of another, you know that things are out of whack in your inner person. You see, think about Chronicles of Narnia, right? Edmund's situation. The Turkish delight itself is not inherently wrong. There is absolutely an environment and in a situation in which he could have feasted on that legitimately and it would have been good, right, beautiful, and celebratory. But also, when he valued that lump of baked sugar over the life of his brother and sisters, over the freedom of the entire land of Narnia, when he elevated himself above the subjugation of others, you know, things are out of whack in his inner person. And we think, I wouldn't fall for that, and we do the same thing today. We so often value others, or less than we value ourselves. And this is what Paul is doing. Imitate God the Father, become a person of self-giving generosity, love, mercy, and kindness. Love like Jesus loved and lay down your life for others. And watch out for what you will become if you are marked by verses 3 to 6. And the challenge is, so often when we hear sin discussed in Scripture, we like automatically... The hair stands up on our neck. We bristle. How dare they? How dare he? How dare that say that? And and we don't like it when anything imposes on what we think of as our autonomous, self-directing, decision-making abilities. We, We get, as Americans, quite uncomfortable when someone else imposes anything on our preferences and our desires. But this is not what the Bible is doing. It's not going You decide what you want, and here's some suggestions. This is actually God saying this is what's best to live in. And the challenge is so often we think God is like interrupting the party. God God is crashing the party. God is messing things up. How dare God say that? And we lose sight of the bigger picture that God actually has an absolute right to say everything that he says to us. This isn't like me stepping into your house and rearranging the furniture, This is like God stepping down to draw near to us, to teach us. See, this is a silly example, but think of it like this. Uh, And the example I'm about to give, this might be the most tense thing I bring up all day amidst amidst covetousness and sexual morality and everything else. This is going to get dramatic, but I'm going to talk about the proper way for you to store butter at your house. (laughs) Because I grew up in a home where the butter was stored in the refrigerator the right way, And in my mid-twenties, I discovered that other people, a lot of people, keep their butter out on the counter all the time. And I'll be honest, I had no idea that was even an option. Like, the butter goes in the fridge, that's what you do, because that's what you do. And then, I I forgot who it was, I was at someone's house, and they're like, yeah, you just keep the butter on the counter. And I walked away going, do you leave your milk on the counter overnight as well? What are you thinking? And I had no idea. It's perfectly legitimate to keep butter on the counter because you want to spread it soft and not have it mess up your toast. I get it. But I still put butter in the fridge because that's what my mom did, okay? And I'm going to obey my mom. And think about this. If I walked into your home and you've got the butter on the counter and I went, no, 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 no. And I put it in the fridge and I said, leave that there. If I did that, that would be absurd. Like, that would be wrong. My preferences for butter storage, though they be right and moral and pure, (laughs) should not dictate your life 
with how you store your butter. I have zero claim on how you store your butter. It would be absurd for me to say you should do it this way. And so often we think in terms of morality, when God steps down and says, you must not, you cannot, you need to stop, you should not, you must do this. We think, whoa, 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 whoa. Get back in your lane, God. Bless me and make my life better. Don't you go telling me what to do. And we make the absurd mistake of equating God's good commands with my preferences for how to store butter. You need to realize God's word, as it says, you must not is not like me with your butter storage. This is the wise commands of the creator who designed the life that we have to be lived a certain way to head towards flourishing. And whenever we need to talk about sin like this text, we need to remember and put it back in the context. This is not God crashing the party that we made. This is God helping us to know how to live in the world he made in the world that he knows how it's supposed to work. So when we come to verse three and we read about sin, we must remember the bigger story. We, see, I wrestled how to do the sermon. I, I thought about unpacking the Greek words and the examples and this word and that word and going in depth and examples today. But I just felt led to zoom out. I'm gonna talk some about that. But what you and I need a reminder of is not just the immediate context, as good as that is, but I want to tell the bigger story. I, I want to show you the goodness of God telling us how to live. You see, we got to go back farther than Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, or Ephesians chapter 1. But when you go back to the beginning of the biblical story, when you see the beauty of how the Bible opens, it will captivate you if you look rightly. You see, the biblical story opens with a picture of a loving, self-existing God who has existed for all of eternity past, eternally existing as three persons in one absolute unity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, for all of eternity, giving to one another love and honor and blessing, experiencing the ultimate experience of joy and delight in one another, in community and relationship. And out of that abundant community, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit created everything in the cosmos in order to display how great and creative and generous and powerful God is, but also to share his goodness with us. So God made the beauty of mountains and the ocean. God made sunsets. God created animals. God made silly little creatures. And then the top of the created order is humanity. As God made man and God made woman to exist in a world in which they experience his delight and his blessing as they come to know God and experience God through the created order that God made. And God said, this is the way to flourishing. This is what I've made. Experience it this way and you will flourish. But if you reject me, if you deny me, if you choose your ways over my ways, you will experience the decay and the death and the futility of sin. See, God made everything in order to give us the experience of delight in relationship with him. But when we go, no, God, that's for me, we forsake that experience. 
And from Genesis 3 on, the rest of the biblical story is the tragedy of us saying, no, God, I want my ways over your ways. And the human history that we see unfolding before our eyes is story after story after story of the misery and futility of saying, no, God, I want it my way, not your way. Now, there's lots of examples I could give, but just staying with the text, Ephesians 5, verse 3, Paul says sexual morality. What is that talking about? You see, go back farther, not just Ephesians 5, 3, the biblical story. God created everything in the created life in order to show us how good and delightful he is. And God made sexual intimacy as a sign of his generosity and goodness. And God made sexual intimacy as a sign of union and self-giving love and mutual delight between one man and one woman in the context of a committed marriage. And God designed marriage between one husband and one wife to display Ephesians 5 will say the gospel. Jesus and his bride, the church, in committed love. Marriage is to be a display of God's design for the gospel. And sexual intimacy is a gift for the context of a husband and a wife to learn to delight in one another, bless one another, and the act itself to knit their hearts together, to knit their minds and souls together, and to draw them closer together in delight and self-giving love. You see, sexual intimacy is a wonderful created thing from God, but when it is taken outside of his design and under his authority, that is when it begins to bring grief and sorrow and brokenness. See, I've heard it explained this way in terms of the power and the danger of sexual intimacy. I've heard the illustration of imagine a fire in your fireplace at home. Think about um, the, the delight of a fire in your fireplace at home. It might be Christmas Day, and that fire is roaring. It's bringing heat and warmth and light. It's setting the, the mood and the ambiance in a wonderful way. There's the crackling sound. There's the smell. Fire in a fireplace at home is awesome. It's a wonderful thing. But we all know instinctively that exact same fire, seven feet to the left, is a terrible thing. That fire in the defined boundaries of the fireplace is a wonderful thing. That fire in the confines of what is designed to hold its power back, to contain its explosive power, that fireplace is the right boundary marker to keep that fire in. And we all know anywhere else, it'll burn the house down. Now think about the mind of a four-year-old boy. And I'm picking a four-year-old boy on purpose because girls don't do this type of thing. But four-year-old boys have thoughts like, that fire's awesome. I should bring it over here. And that boy thinks, you know what? I miss s'mores. I'm going to make some s'mores in my house. And they take a piece of paper, something like that. They get the fire from the fireplace, carry it over to their corner of the den, and put the fire in their little plastic toy kitchen and begin to make a fire to make some s'mores on Christmas Day. And dad walks down, mom walks down, what are you doing? No, get it, no, and trying to put out the fire. And that four-year-old kid is going, geez, mom's a little uptight today. It's the, you've got fire over there, why can't I have fire here? But we all know the absurdity of that logic. That fire is wonderful in the confines it's supposed to be. It is destructive anywhere else outside of that. And this isn't just about sexuality, but let's just admit it. 
Too often we're thinking, geez, God, you're a little bit uptight, aren't you? While he's going, the fire will burn your house down. If you handle money like that, if you are covetous and greedy, it will ruin your life instead of giving your money to bless others. If you engage in sexual activity outside of God's designs, it will burn down the house. It is designed to be kept in the fireplace. Just briefly, I'm not going to get into it in depth, but this term, sexual immorality, it is referring to any type of sexual activity outside of God's designed fireplace of a committed marriage between one man and one woman, that God's design in marriage is to create that type of relationship. And in other spots in the New Testament, you'll see other Greek words like porneia, which gives us the word we think it does in our language. And that word porneia is basically like a junk drawer. Like it doesn't define everything. It's just like the junk drawer in your house where just you throw everything in there. It's a junk drawer category for all types of sexual sin that we see growing increasingly prevalent in our day and age. And God's warning is fire in the fireplace is delightful. Sexual intimacy in the confines of a husband and a wife together in marriage committed together is delightful. Anything outside of that design is like fire seven feet to the left of the fireplace. Watch out. We'll get into that more in God's design for marriage next couple of weeks as well at the ending of Ephesians 5. But this is what we need to remember. This text is not stop it, you bad, bad sinner. Go in the corner and think about what you've done. This text is a continuation of the invitation to become the person you've always longed to be. And the danger here is that living a life characterized by sexual sin will make you into the type of person who is turned in on yourself. Sexual sin makes you inherently selfish rather than selfless. Sexual sin will make you look at people as a commodity to consume rather than an image of God person to honor, bless, and respect. You see, this is the exact danger of sexual sin. It takes you away from the deepest desires of your heart to love like Jesus loved and be a self-giving individual. And it makes you obsessed with your own appetites. It is like Turkish delight causing us to be irrational. But remember, verse 3 does not just address sexual sin. Look at the rest of verse 3. Paul continues. And all impurity, that's a big category, all impurity. Uh, some scholars think this is referring back primarily to sexual immorality. It can do that. But notice the qualifier, all impurity. Uh, other scholars say th this is like everything. This is raunchy speech, all impurity. Anything unpure is what Paul is talking about here. All impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. This isn't just about sexual sin. We are caught, busted, red-handed here in America just on the covetousness idea. Man alive, let's just look at our Amazon Primes right now and we'll get a conviction in our heart. Are you characterized by an insatiable desire for more? Are you content in whatever amount of money God has given you? Or are you greedy for more because of what that person has? Watch out. Materialism and envy and greed will turn you in on yourself rather than living an open-handed life of blessing and delight in God and blessing others. 
Continues on, look at verse four with me. Paul says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Oh my goodness, isn't this interesting? That as Paul says, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Notice he doesn't end verse four with, and you better have a clean mouth with pure, with pure lips. That would have been good and appropriate. That would have been right. But notice Paul ends with, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Isn't that interesting that Paul contrasts impurity with thanksgiving? A heart that is dependent on God and content in God and receiving with open hands whatever God decides to give and thanking God, that heart will become a pure heart. That does not overflow with filthiness. One commentary, though, I was reading explained it this way about this section on our speech. It says, All three terms refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. This kind of language must be avoided as utterly inappropriate among those whom God has set apart as holy. So not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's really quick. What are your speech patterns revealing about the condition of your heart? Jesus himself said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What jokes are you telling? What jokes are you laughing at? What shows are you watching that are just numbing your conscience to the filth on the screen? What news media channels are you watching that's just making you look at those people as garbage that you disparage? What social media accounts are you following that is placing memes and reels and jokes before your mind that is filling your mind with the thought patterns of the world rather than the beauty of Jesus Christ? Be aware, friend, whether it's social media or news channels, whatever you watch, does not go in one ear and out the other. Whatever you watch sets down into your mind and shapes your heart and will come out of your mouth. May we be a church that is more discerning in what we take in so that we become people who pour out the truth of Jesus Christ. Look at verse five with me, Paul continues. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. For you may be sure of this, there's no doubt. This isn't like a gray area. This is dead center clarity. You may be sure of this, verse 5 begins. That everyone who is sexually immoral, continues on, or impure, continues on, or who is covetous, Notice, that is an idolater. You know, earlier on, Pastor John talked about idolatry. You know, we don't think about that in terms of a gold statue or a wooden statue that we get down and bow down and get low before and sing a song of worship to. We don't think about idolatry in those terms normally in America. But the biblical category of idolatry is less about a statue and it is more about are we valuing any created thing above the creator? See, when you walk down any mall in Lake County, you're probably not going to see some kind of statue like you'd see at a Hindu temple in India. But friends, all around, there is idolatry here in America. 
where we are valuing a created thing more than we're valuing the creator. And notice Paul says, covetousness, which is idolatry, valuing a created thing over God, valuing that Turkish delight over what's wise and right in God's eyes. Notice Paul says, anyone who does any of these things ultimately has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Oh my goodness. Is this saying, if you sin in this category, you don't get to go to the kingdom of God in heaven? Is this saying, if you struggle, if you stumble, too bad for you, you fit on this list from verse 5. You miss out on heaven forever. That's not what this is saying, actually. What Paul is saying here, though, is there is an experience of life, both now and forevermore, where we are under the care of God and the authority of God in his kingdom, where there is a way of life where we can flourish fully in eternity in heaven, but also partially in life here and now. You and I could live and flourish in the kingdom of God right now. And Paul is saying not, if you stumble, you lose it. He is not saying, if you struggle, you lose it. Paul is saying in verse 5, if you give yourself over to these things, if you let this rule your life more than God, if you say, I know God said it, but I don't care, I'm doing this, then you will miss out on the kingdom of God. Paul is not listing here, here's the top three sins. If you fall in this category, you lose. And then we look at those people differently. No, this list is representative of a life lived with the desires of sin at the center rather than Jesus. So friend, I've got to walk a tightrope here. Some of us here in this room, there's a tender conscience and we're going, oh no, I'm on that list. God's giving up on me. Hear me, friend. God is not giving up on you. There is more mercy and grace and love and forgiveness than you could fathom. No one in this room, no one watching online has done too much for God to forgive. Friend, if you are stumbling and struggling, it's okay. Keep stumbling towards Jesus. There is life in the kingdom available for you, even for all of us who struggle with these sins. Grace for those who have a trembling conscience. Oh no, is God giving up on me? No. But I also need to walk the tightrope and speak to some who have a hardened heart and a dull, numb conscience who's not caring. Friend, are you making war against your sin or have you made peace with your sin? Are you going, I know it's what God says, but I want it anyways, so I'm going to do it. Friend, what Paul is warning against is not stumbling, but giving oneself over. And if you give yourself over to these or any sin, you are showing you don't want Jesus as your king, you want your desires as king. And Paul is saying, anyone who lives like that, whether it be one of these sins or a different sin, not on the list. If anyone says, I don't want Jesus, I want what I want, Paul is saying, you're setting up your tent in the kingdom of darkness, not in the kingdom of God and kingdom of Jesus. So this list is not for us to go, those people with sexual morality and covetousness, they're not on the list going to heaven, but I am. No, this is representative of, is your heart at war against sin or at peace with your sin? 
Briefly, continues on, look at verse six with me. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Every single day, we are being lied to that these things aren't that big of a deal. Friend, let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't be a sucker. Don't let these lies flood your mind in such a way where you let your guard down. You may be sure of this. Let no one deceive you. If your life is characterized by these sins and others, you're not living with Jesus. You're living with your appetites at the center. And notice verse six continues, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, meaning God will judge anything that is contrary to his will ultimately. And this is not saying these sins only, but all of our sins. And here's the beauty. God is a God of love and God is a God of justice. And because God loves, God will bring justice. His love does not undermine his justice. And eventually God will give sin what sin deserves. And the wrath of God will eventually come against all unrepented sin that is not covered by Jesus Christ's death at the cross and his resurrection. And so this is a sobering text but this is a life-giving text. Come into the kingdom of God. Learn to live with Jesus as your king. Flourish under his care and flee from the danger of these sins. Just briefly, I just want to exhort the parents, please remember that your children are under your care, whatever age they are. If they're in your household, you are responsible parents. Think about verse six. Let no one Deceive your children with empty words. I encourage and I challenge you to ensure you are filling your children's minds with the truth of God so they can navigate the complexity of this world. Your kids are being lied to. May you lead them to the truth of God. In closing, up on the screen, the invitation and the challenge. Here's what I want us to remember from this text. We must forsake sin to enter into the experience of the kingdom of God. Verse five, you may be sure of this. Like we have to flee from these sins. If we give ourselves over, if we go, I know God said it, but I still want it. We will miss out on the full experience of the kingdom, both forever and in the here and the now. We must forsake it. Second idea, this is challenging, but hear me. Ultimately, it will be life-giving. You will enjoy life more the less sin has dominion over your heart. It is the most life-giving thing you can do to forsake sin and adore Jesus Christ and become like him. And my challenging question for you to reflect on this week is, are you making war against your sin or are you making peace with your sin? Whatever it may be, here's the hope for us, friend. Sin turns you in on yourself. And God wants to turn you out towards all that is good, right, true, and beautiful. The invitation is to look to Jesus and to forsake sin. And the beauty of C.S. Lewis's account with the Chronicles of Narnia is eventually Edmund realizes the peril of what he is doing. And Edmund realizes a little bit more Turkish delight isn't what he needs. And he flees from the danger of what the white witch was leading him into. And eventually Edmund lived a life of nobility and sacrifice and honor, and he protected his siblings and he helped lead Narnia into a flourishing existence. Whatever sin is in your life right now, you can turn from it. 
We're going to step into a time of worship and prayer right now. I'm going to give you a couple seconds to silence your heart, and then I'll pray, and then they'll lead us into worship. Take a couple seconds right now and do anything you need to with God, and then I'll close in prayer.